Hello, my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. And I'm delighted to say we're joined for this special edition today by Thomas Piketty, author of Capital in the 21st Century, which I think I can say is the most important book about economics that's been published so far in the 21st century. There's a way to go. Uh, Thomas is also a very prominent figure in French political life as a commentator, also as an advisor. And I'm joined by Hugo Drochon, who's been writing about the French presidential election for the New Statesman and others. Thomas here, he's just given a, a pair of lectures on the broad theme of inequality, and it's touched a lot on politics. Those lectures have been filmed, and we'll post the link so that people can watch them online. We're speaking the morning after the French presidential debate between Macron and Le Pen, that Macron was thought to have won, but then Hillary Clinton was thought to have won her debate with Donald Trump. Uh, let's not go there. But we're speaking, obviously, before the vote this weekend. We have some idea of what might happen, but we don't know for certain. But, Tom, if we could go back to the first round, the most striking thing was that the two main parties, the mainstream parties, were not able, either of them, to get a candidate through to the second round. So broadly, what is driving that? And that's a phenomenon we see in different parts of the democratic world. We'll come on to the particular problem for social democracy in a second. But what do you think is the primary driver of this inability for the mainstream parties to, to command the vote they used to command? Well, there are long-run evolution in the, in the structure of the electorate of left-wing parties. There are long-run uh, evolution and the challenges that they face. And there are also more shorter-run problems. So in, in the particular case of, of France and, and the Eurozone more generally, in the past 10 years, the parties in power, and so in particular the, the Socialist Party in the past five years and the right-wing party Sarkozy the five years before, have done a terrible job with the financial crisis. So the fact that voters are fed up with them and, and want to try something else is not so surprising. So let, let's just put the facts straight. Uh, the financial crisis of 2008 doesn't come from Europe. It comes from the US. It comes from an excess of financial deregulation. It comes from the private banking sector. And Europe, and in particular Eurozone countries, have transformed this crisis into a public debt European crisis, in spite of the fact that there was no more public debt in the Eurozone to begin with than in the US, in Britain or in Japan, just because of our inability to organize ourselves. You cannot have a single currency and at the same time 19 different interest rates on the public debt on which financial markets can speculate, 19 different corporate tax in competition with one another. So the old system is badly conceived. I think it's possible to make it work, but you have to have a common public debt, a common budget, a common Eurozone assembly. And I think we need to involve national parliament members in the governance of the Eurozone. So you need deep economic and even more importantly, political, democratic, institutional reform in the Eurozone to make it work. And in the past 10 years, both the right and the left in France have been completely unable to, to deliver on that front. And they have had an attitude, basically, which consists of saying, we have to wait for Germany to make proposal before we can change anything. And, and I think this is a terrible attitude because France has to play its part in this European debate. And also because this, in fact, contributes to raise a sort of a nationalist feeling in France, sometimes anti-German attitude, which is uh, very bad. 
So now we have this election. Uh, I, you know, I think Macron is going to win on Sunday. I think the difference with Trump-Clinton, there are many differences, but one of the key differences is that Trump was still able to attract some of the pro-business vote in the US, whereas uh, Marine Le Pen is very uh, frightening for uh, lots of people, including you know higher education group, but also higher income and wealth group in France. So I don't think she can win. But she will probably do a very, a very good score, you know, much higher than her first round score, which was only 21%, which is already a lot. She can go above 40. And crucially, much higher than her father. And much higher than her Exactly. Higher. So we have to remember in 2002, he was at 16% at the first round. And, and he, he went down, he, didn't he? He went up to 18% oh, by two percentage right. points. But the second round, you know, it was 80 to 18. Now we are going to have maybe 60, 40. Uh, and so that's a big difference. This means that a long way toward 50% has been already you know, accomplished uh, during this 15-year period. So this is very frightening. And we've had regional elections in France two years ago, where both in the north of France and the south of France, we had elections that were close to 55-45 between the right and the National Front. So we are getting to a situation that is close to be completely out of control. And, and this is really sad, and we should not feel... Uh, you know, reinsured by the fact that probably Macron is going to win. So, so we'll come on to Macron in a second, and, and Hugo can come in in a second too. On the two main parties, there is still a big difference between how they perform. I mean, Fion, without the scandal, presumably at least might have had a chance, and had he got through, he might have won, possibly. Whereas Amon, whose campaign I think you were involved in in some respects, it was a wider European story that mainstream social democratic parties are really in some places in a kind of free fall. Given how the blame is doled out by the voters who are sick of the lot of them, why is the left getting more of the blame than the right? And of course, that's true in this country too. Okay, so in the case of France, you know, I think it's just the left was in power during the past five years. So the, the natural outcome was to return to the right. And indeed, this probably what would have happened without the political scandals and financial scandals around Fillon. And I think, you know, the right-wing party should have been able to replace Fillon uh, much earlier. This is, you know, I have no problem with Macron winning if it's for good reason. But here, in a way, it's not that there was a strong support for Macron. It's just that the support for Fillon completely collapsed in one month. So we have to remember that at the end of January, before the, the political scandal uh, happened, Fillon was above 30% in the poll, was at 32%, Macron was at 17, 18%, 15 points below. There is no way this would have changed uh, without the, the political scandal. So the right was about to win just because uh, voters were about to go from left to right, right to left, just as they did five years ago. In the case of, of the Socialist Party candidate Amon, I think he, he suffered a lot, and probably this was uh, underestimated in the first place, from the fact that electors were so fed up with the Socialist Party in power that even though Amon himself was very critical of the choices that were made. And he did everything he could to distance himself. Yes, but in the end, this was the candidate of the Socialist Party. So, so in the end, Mélenchon, is, you know, more radical left candidate, did 20% and, and Amon did 6%. I think, you know, tactical voting consideration, of course, played a role. So, so Amon was also uh, the victim of a sort of a double tactical vote. You know, the people more to the center voted for Macron, the people more to the left voted for Mélenchon. And in the end, in the middle, you know, it's a complicated electoral system. If it had been 
in a parliamentary election with proportional representation, I think it would have been very different because then probably you would have had, you know, 15 person for the Socialist Party, 15 person for Macron, 15 person for Mélenchon. It would have been much more balanced. But when you have this two round election and you want to make it to the second round, As you know, there is a self-fulfilling mechanics of, uh, between polls and actual voting behavior. Once some polls show that a candidate is falling behind the top contenders, then well, nobody... There's a rush for the exit. There's a rush for the exit. So, look, at the end of the day, we have four candidates between 20 and 24. So this is clearly, you have a concentration of the vote in the top four contenders, which is something we, we never had such a split vote. In the end, if you look in terms of political ideology at the structure of the first round of the election, I would say you have an electorate that is split into three big uh, components, you know, so a nationalist component, which is Le Pen, uh, Dupont-Aignan, part of Fillon, that's about one third of the vote, 30%, one third. You have a more uh, laissez-faire, uh, pro-business, uh, some would say neoliberal uh, vote, which is around Macron, part of Fillon, which is about 30% of the vote. And then, if you put together Mélenchon and, and Hamon and the two other small left-wing candidates, you have about 30% of the vote. I mean, there's, there's a lot of difference within each of these three groups, but basically you have a, you know, nationalism, liberalism, and, and socialism, if you wish, you know, if we want to have big uh, political categories, which are well represented. So we have an electorate that is uh, wondering, like all of us, about how to regulate capitalism. And so, you know, liberalism is a response, nationalism is a reaction, socialism is, an, is another form of reaction, you know, more peaceful, more democratic than nationalism. But it's difficult to invent new forms of socialism or you know, collective regulation of capitalism. And in France, like in Britain, like in other countries, You know, it takes time to, to, to deliver these new uh, platforms. Maybe you could talk about um, Jean-Luc Mélenchon, because then, um, you expressed some sympathy towards his position throughout the campaign, and Benoît Hamon kind of did the same. And I was interested to see in, the, in your answer to David's first question that you cautioned against this idea that just because if Macron comes to power, then maybe that it's not going to push away Le Pen, that Le Pen might come out um, next time around. And there's been this slogan, the big question in France at the moment has been, what are the voters who voted for Jean-Luc Mélenchon? Or what are they going to do? Are they going to vote for Macron or are they going to abstain? And one of the slogans that's come out is this idea that Macron 2017, Le Pen 2022. And I was just wondering if what your view on that was, you think that's that's valid? Do you think it's only a kind of left-wing populism that Mélenchon says that he incarnates can fight against a right-wing populism? Or do you think some kind of centrist, more pluralist politics can also try to stop Le Pen and the, the rise of the Front National? Let me first say that, you know, I am a social scientist. I believe in the power of books and ideas. And, you know, I have never been a, a militant of any uh, political party. At the same time, you know, I feel as a citizen that, you know, I, it's too easy just to stay in my office as a, you know, as a scholar. And so when there are elections, I, I force myself to take position, which is complicated because, you know, it's always easier not to take position. In this election, I was indeed supporting Hamon because I think he was the only candidate that was pushing in particular for a 
democratization of Europe. And I wrote this book on a new treaty for the democratization of Europe together with lawyers and political scientists, uh, Stéphanie Hennet, Guillaume Sacrest, Antoine Vauches, who have written this little book called a treaty for a democratization of Europe, which is now being translated in 10 European languages. And, you know, this was my little contribution as a social scientist to the uh, campaign. And I think Amon was the only candidate that was proposing a transformation of Europe as opposed to Macron and Fillon, which were more for the status quo, which didn't really propose any major change to the treaties, and in particular the new budgetary treaties that was adopted in 2012, and Le Pen and Mélenchon, who were, in a way, proposing to you know throw everything away. And so coming to Mélenchon, look... If I had been satisfied with Mélenchon, you know, I would have been supporting Mélenchon. And, you know, I was not satisfied with Mélenchon. I was not satisfied with Macron. So I was pushing for another candidate. You know, it's complicated. Mélenchon is... Um, he was proposing to change European treaties, but without really being very explicit about his proposal. And I think there would have been a big risk with Mélenchon uh, winning that, you know, he would say a little bit like Cameron and the other side of the political spectrum, I am asking for a big revision of the treaty. If I am not satisfied, I will call for a referendum, except that he doesn't say at the beginning what he wants to obtain from his partners, which is a very <laughs> risky game. And, uh, and, as and, Cameron showed. Yeah, exactly. And so, look, Mélenchon, I was very concerned. At the same time, this new form of political conflict that Macron is promoting, where you have you don't have the, the left or the right, you have the progressive uh, as opposed to the nationalist, which is the way Macron is describing his role and which is also the way Le Pen is describing her role, I think is very frightening for the future. Because in practice, if you look at the structure of who votes for what, you have you know basically the high education people vote for Macron, also the high wealth people vote for Macron, high-income people. So this is something very new because this is a kind of structure of the vote where, in effect, the poor, both in terms of human capital and financial capital, vote for the right, or at least for the extreme right, and the rich, both in terms of human capital and financial capital, vote more for the left, or at least for the self-proclaimed progressive. This is a structure of the vote that you've seen with Brexit to some extent that we've seen in France for European votes in the past, you know, in the 1992 referendum for Maastricht and the 2005 referendum on the European Constitution. It was a little bit the same structure of the vote, except that it was not party election. It, it was a referendum on Europe. And so now, you know, this new cleavage, this new organization of political conflict around Europe, around globalization, around international issues is sort of taking over the entire structure of, of political conflict, at least for this second round of the French presidential election. And this is very new. Although, you know, to some extent, you can say the presidential election in Austria was a little bit like this also. So, you know, it's not that France is you know, inventing something new. There is a tendency in this direction, which I think is frightening because this corresponds to a situation where the self-proclaimed uh, progressive camp is, in a way, you know, abandoning the... the uh, more disadvantaged social groups uh, because uh, implicitly or explicitly the strategy is to abandon them to their uh, racism and xenophobic uh, sentiments and to me this is uh, you know, I don't know if this means that Le Pen can win next time but in any case this is not good in terms of promoting 
a new regulation of uh, capitalism, reduction of uh, inequality, because this pushes the so-called progressive camp into a, a less and less uh, redistribution, and this pushes in the direction of taking more attention and putting more attention for the more privileged uh, socio-economic uh, groups, which so, are their voters. So if we link that to the themes of your lectures, the broader question of inequality, as you say there, looked at from the outside, you might assume that, as, as you famously documented, the, the rising levels of inequality across within nations, but you see the same phenomenon everywhere, would make inequality a driver of politics as well in the way that we might expect, which is to make redistribution and politicians advocating redistribution more popular. And it hasn't come out like that. And we're seeing that here too, as you say, that the progressives have become the wealthier and the better educated. And the nationalists and the angriest voters in many ways are not pushing for redistribution. Why? Why is inequality not more central to our politics? It's having all these effects, these kind of secondary effects, but why is it not having a more direct primary effect as the dividing line? I think that unfortunately, you know, ethnic division and nationalist division are sort of taking over the class-based uh, division, basically. Uh, but it could change. You know, this is not something, it's not as if we are stuck in this situation forever. But I think this, there is a need to rethink the conditions under which, uh, you know, class-based vertical redistribution and winning coalition pushing for vertical redistribution can or cannot happen. And so if we look at the history of, of the 20th century and the evolution of inequality over this period, one of the central findings of my work is that there was no reduction of inequality until World War One. It's really after these major shocks of World War One, World War Two, the Great Depression, that the elites had to accept a number of social reform and fiscal reform in, in Europe in particular, which led to a sustained reduction of, of inequality. And this sort of post-World War II uh, consensus around the welfare state and social democratic parties in its various forms in the different countries was in a way a very exceptional period that was produced by particular political events. And it has lasted for so long, well, just several decades that we, we sort of thought of it as a new normal situation, but in fact, it is the, the product of particular circumstances. And it's, a, in a way, it's, you can also say that it's a miracle that people are able to forget about all the other division between them, you know, the ethnic division, the nationalist division between countries, and to focus on the what makes them uh, similar and what makes them have, uh, you know, common uh, interest in policies on the basis of income, wealth, education, and more universal criteria than, uh, you know, race, ethnic, or nationality. And so, but this miracle can happen again. But for this, we need to accept the view that there's nothing particularly natural in this way of organizing the political conflict. And, we, you know, we have to take the step. I think we have to show that the you know, new forms of solidarity, new form of egalitarianism, new form of redistribution are possible in the globalized economy. That's complicated. This requires new tools. But if we give up and we just say, okay, now it's not possible, you know, which is a little bit like what Macron is saying sometimes, which is say, he's saying like, you know, for instance, the wealth tax in France, okay, you cannot measure easily cross-border financial assets. So we just 
get rid entirely of taxing financial wealth. It will be only real estate. So, you know, middle class people with their uh, little apartment worth 100,000 euros or 200,000 euros, they will pay big property tax. But the people with 10 million euros in financial portfolio, they pay nothing. Now, if you do that, if you go further in this direction, I think you are exacerbating the feeling by middle class and, and lower class voters that the system is working for people at the top. So, so we have to be very, very careful if we want to avoid this uh, evolution. This is Talking Politics. My name is David Runciman. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. It's interesting to talk about what the future of the left might be in France. But I did see certain things in Macron's program which I thought would be amenable to some of your thinking, including um, the universal social welfare, investment in retraining for those who are being unemployed for a long time, also an investment in, in schools, in the banlieue that are a bit more difficult. And I suppose some people have tried to see if there's ways of combining Macron's project and maybe someone like Amon's project who you're closer to. Would it be possible to see a kind of a configuration which would, on the one hand, have a kind of a more individualistic idea of what social welfare might be, but would be combined with, say, the universal basic income, which was the main platform idea of Benoit Amon's um, campaign? I hope so. Look, I, I wrote a, a book uh, 10 years ago on a universal pension system trying to unite the different uh, pension funds that we have in France, which are very complicated with very different rules for the public sector, the private sector, self-employed. So, I am, you know, I'm still in favor of that, of course. And if, if Macron is uh, a good uh, uh, reform in this direction, you know, of course, that's I think that's positive. What makes me a bit skeptical, but we'll see, you know, I want, of course, I want that it works. And, and France has a gross gap, big output gap. Uh, the GDP of France right now is roughly at the same level as in 2007, except that population has increased by uh, almost 6%. So GDP per capita, you know, has declined by 6%. This is a 10-year recession, basically. So there's a huge output gap. And so it's possible that the next five years, France is going to do well and Macron is going to... Be, and, uh, you know, I hope that. What makes me a bit skeptical about Macron is not a person of Macron. It's also the French presidential system produces <laughs> strange characters, you know, in the sense that once you've won this presidential election, you know, you feel that you are so important that you don't have to listen and, and yet you uh, we'll see. We'll see the kind of parliamentary coalition is able to build and the kind of platform is able to build. At this stage, you know, we don't know much about the pension reform. You know, it's like one line and a half. What we know about the unemployment insurance reform is not completely reassuring. You know, the idea of having unemployment insurance for the, the self-employed who quit voluntarily, etc., you know, it's really weird. So this was a way for him to look like a startup person, but I'm not sure it flies. 
the way it is financed, which is by, by putting very strong conditions on job acceptance for the people who are already unemployed, you know, like one offer, two offer, you're out. Looks a bit like uh, the latest Ken Loach movie uh, to me. So, so we have to, you know, we have to see. Uh, the very specific proposal that he made regarding progressive taxation, which is a important issue for me, are frightening in the sense that he's proposing basically a regressive form of taxation, both for income and for wealth. So for wealth, he wants to keep a very high property tax that we have on people who own their apartment and home and get rid entirely of the tax on financial assets and business assets. So in effect, you will pay a lower tax rate um, if you have 10 million than if you have uh, 100,000. And for income, is proposing to, uh, you know, reduce uh, the tax on financial income, interest and dividend as compared to labor income. So basically, if you make a lot of money with your labor income, 100, 200,000 euros, you pay 55% right now in France, you know, 45 income tax and 10% social contribution with the CSG. So 55%. This will be reduced to 30% if you make interest and dividend. I can see the argument. The argument is ah, it's difficult in the globalized economy to track down financial flows, so we, we you know we have to give up. But it's weird because you can have a, a lot of interest income and dividend income without working or you know working less than with your labor income, and then you're taxed twice as much with your labor income. I don't know. I'm not sure this is going in the right direction. But let's see. Let's see. Of course, I am voting for Macron on Sunday. You know, there's no, no doubt. <laughs> If I can finish with a very big question, but it connects what we've been talking about in relation to France, but also the broader themes of your work and, and your lectures. As you said, one of your big lessons is that none of this is preordained. None of it is some kind of natural process. Politics makes a huge difference to all of these big questions, above all the question of inequality. And yet the story of the 20th century, it both shows that human societies can completely reorient the way that they're run, new kinds of social solidarity can emerge, the rich can throw in their lot with the poor. But that it often takes a crisis, and these crises are often truly terrible events. The two world wars, the Great Depression, and so on. So when we look ahead, I mean, your work both suggests that there are some quite technical things that we could do if a politician could sell it that could make a big difference. But it also suggests, to me anyway, that the kind of change we saw in the 20th century, a lot of it was conditional on the kinds of crises we would do anything to avoid. There's an optimistic and a pessimistic takeaway. Am I, and yeah, my instincts know, as, are pessimistic, but I would like look, to be as, as persuaded in, we could do it without the crisis. <laughs> As intellectuals and as social scientists, you know, we believe in the in the power of ideas, in the power of books, and I think our role is to try to show that there is a democratic way, there is a democratic path toward the right uh, redistribution and policy and, and development uh, strategy. Now, is this the only path and is this what's going to happen? Uh, I'm not so sure. So in the case of, of Europe, the big risk, of course, now is to have generalized uh, split of the European Union and in particular of the Eurozone. And I think after Brexit, uh, we cannot claim that this cannot happen. You know, clearly this can happen. You know, if Cameron did it, you know, of playing this kind of stupid political game of calling for a referendum, and at the end of the day, you don't even know what people have voted for, you know, and if a country with a long democratic parliamentary uh, tradition like Britain 
is able to play such a stupid populist political game. You know, this can certainly happen in Italy, this can certainly happen in France, this can happen everywhere. So I don't know where will be the next shock, but I think this is a serious risk. And and then then you enter into chaos and a return to national currencies uh, in the eurozone uh, probably with a lot of uh, inflationary and monetary uh, chaos and 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 you don't know exactly where it stops and this can deliver sometime redistribution which can be needed but at the price of a lot of nationalist conflict uh, ethnic conflict and this is this is uh, very frightening so at the same time You know, I think it's not so complicated to solve the problem we have to solve through peaceful, democratic way. So that's why, you know, I still I still believe in this solution. If you look at the history of inequality and class conflict and, and the history of public debt, you see in the past crises which were at least as bad. And sometimes they were solved following you know, dramatic shocks, events. But what we can also remember from these historical instances is that there are solutions, like if we think of public debt after World War II, Germany, France had huge public debt, you know, 200% of GDP more than Greece today, and with a much bigger GDP, because Greece is only 2% of European GDP. And what happened is that they took the decision to postpone this public debt, you know, in particular the external debt of Germany at the, at the London uh, 1953 conference was postponed. Officially, it was not cancelled. You know, officially, what was decided was, okay, we will talk again about it after German unification. And indeed, in 1991, the issue was brought up again and the decision was made to cancel it completely because, in fact, there was no indexation on inflation or GDP in 1953, so the amounts were so ridiculously small. That, that. Now, I think at the end of the day, this is what should happen and this is what will happen with part of the uh, Greek uh, public debt and more generally the Southern European public debt. A country like Italy right now, is putting 4% of GDP uh, in interest payment to its own rentiers because it's mostly domestic debt and at the level of the of the eurozone all debts are domestic so you know, we can we can do what we want and Italy is paying 4% of GDP in interest payment to its own rentiers whereas the total budget of its entire higher education system is less than 1% of GDP so what is the best way to prepare the future and to have the knowledge economy and innovation economy of the future you know of course we should it sounds obvious so so, so At, at some point, I think, you know, common sense should prevail. But for this, we need, in particular, France and, and Germany and Italy and Spain to have the, the political reform in the Eurozone with, a, you know, Eurozone uh, Democratic Assembly to be able to build the democratic legitimacy to take this difficult decision about public debt restructuring, common tax on corporations. What makes me optimistic at the end of the day is, I believe, the attachment of public opinion to the European ideal in Germany, in France, but also in Italy and Spain is much stronger than what it was in, in Britain. And and I think in the end, this is this will prevail. Always good to end on a note of optimism, though we're in Britain. So, and uh, we will be speaking on this podcast next to Michael Gove, who was instrumental in Britain leaving the European Union. So we'll get the other side. Thomas, thank you very much. If you'd like to watch Tama Piketty's lectures, they've been filmed and they're going to be made available soon. We will link to them if you go to our website, talkingpoliticspodcast.com, or we'll post a link on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Join us again next for our conversation with Michael Gove 
and next week when we'll look at the results of the French election. And if we've all been surprised, we will have a lot to talk about. My name is David Runciman and we've been Talking Politics. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.